Welcome to this next lecture on Western civilization. Uh, we are in the unit, the quarter on Rome, Rome's um, republic and Rome's empire, and we're still on the side of things when Rome had a republic, a race publica, uh, a thing of the public, uh, and they still had a admired and guarded constitution, a set of laws that uh, set the boundaries for Roman government. Um, but the event we're going to treat today, or the series of events, is sort of the beginning of the downward slide for Rome. When Rome went from protecting themselves uh, and enforcing a foreign policy that was primarily about protecting their borders and securing peace, uh, to a time when they began to participate in conquests, quite honestly, out of greed uh, and out of a quest for more and more power and more and more wealth. So what we're going to discuss today are the Punic Wars, or as they are also called, the Carthaginian Wars. Um, and these wars took place, there's a series of three wars that took place between from 264 B.C. to 146 B.C. Uh, so a period of a little bit over 100 years, um, and a series of three wars with the only other competitor to power uh, in the Western Mediterranean, the city of Carthage. Carthage was a seafaring empire. They had um, trading connections all over the Mediterranean. Uh, they had been a colony in the 9th century BC settled from, as we discussed in class, Phoenicia. Um, the, the Carthaginians were an empire. They were, uh, they were governed more like the rest of the ancient world at the time. Uh, by kings, uh, and so they were politically a good deal different uh, than Rome. So after the conflict with Pyrrhus, uh, the king of Epirus, uh, during which uh, the Romans lost the battle but won the war because Pyrrhus uh, and his defeat and his uh, troops were almost entirely wiped out. Uh, Rome dominates the entire Italian peninsula, and they're, as they usually do, looking around to secure the situation. Uh, and because of this, they're looking further abroad into the Mediterranean. Now, up until this point, Rome did not have much of a navy because they were just taking care of things in the Italian peninsula. Uh, but the First Punic War is going to quickly transfer them into, uh, into the world of navies and sea, sea battles. So um, there, was this, there was the island of Sicily that Rome was turning their eyes toward. And Sicily was a sort of a cosmopolitan island. There were influences from all over the Mediterranean there. But in particular, there was a city called Messina. And Messina had, in the past, sided with Carthage. In fact, they solicited Carthage's help and input, but then, for some reason or another, seemed threatened or not so sure they wanted uh, Carthage on their side, because, after all, Carthage, Carthage was an empire. And they looked around and said, you know, Rome, uh, Rome's allies seem to be treated better. Let's change sides here and ask Rome for help. So Rome sends troops to the island of, of Sicily and to Messina, and um, this is seen as an act of provocation by the Carthaginians. Uh, Rome intervened, and this basically starts the First Punic War, or the First Phoenician War. 
the war goes from 264 to 241. And um, this is a situation not unlike the conflict between Athens and Sparta. If you'll remember, Sparta was the, uh, well, their army was great. They had great uh, power on land, whereas the Athenians were great at sea. Well, in this case, the Carthaginians had a great navy, not so great of an army, and the Romans had a great army. Well, we see the tenacity of the Romans um, and the energy of the Romans in that after one particular battle where they lost a naval battle, they said, well, we need to change this. And as Rome was often to do, they said, okay, so we need a fleet of ships. So they built a fleet of ships of about a 100 ships in a matter of weeks. See, this is what Rome could do. They could take something that someone else had done and do it on a large scale and bring minor improvements to it. So it's a really remarkable feat uh, that in a matter of weeks they built an entire navy. Now, they're not seafarers that much, but they quickly adapted. Uh, the typical way you battled at sea was you had rowing vessels that you used to ram other ships and hopefully breach their hull and make them sink. Well, the Romans, being good at land battle, decided, you know, we need to somehow bring our ability to fight at on land to bear on, uh, on naval fighting. So they invented something that they added to their ships called the Corvus, or the Corvus, C-O-R-V-U-S. Uh, the Corvus was a hinged bridge, a hinged plank, really, with a uh, spike. And what they would do is when they passed another ship, they could swing this spike out, or swing this board out. It would attach itself to the other ship, uh, effectively keeping them from sailing or rowing off. And then these superior Roman soldiers would board the ship and slaughter everybody and take it over. Um, so with this uh, sort of instant fleet and with the invention of the Corvus, um, the Romans were able to eventually uh, defeat the Carthaginians. As you can see, it was a long war, as wars were in those days. Um, and they won the war, sealed the deal in a naval victory, and as a result got the island of Sicily. Now Rome is at sea. Rome is a naval power. Uh, Rome is looking around the Mediterranean for what's next. Well, the Carthaginians, though defeated, were not done. Um, one of their leading families, um, the leader of which his name was Hamilcar Barca, uh, spends the next years strengthening Carthage's powers throughout the Mediterranean, particularly in Spain. Uh, the Carthaginians... Um, had settlements and colonies there and extended their power there. And um, so they were sort of flanking Rome or really expanding to other places and biding their time. They, they were beaten in, in the battle or in the first war, but they're not done. And so they're building up their strength. And eventually Hamilcar Barca is su succeeded in power by his son, the famous Hannibal. Uh, Hannibal came to command in 221 BC, and in 219, after being convinced that Carthage's strength was now built up again, uh, uh, Hannibal attacks Sagantum, uh, a city in Spain 
allied with Rome. Now, you've got to keep in mind, Rome is making alliances and growing in power. Well, the city is attacked um, by the Carthaginians, and this thus provokes the Second Carthaginian War. Well, Hannibal, in a very bold and famous or infamous move, decides that he is going to invade Italy itself. He is going to bring the fight to Roman soil. So in 218, he crosses the Alps with his entire army. Uh, it was a very, it was a very heroic, brave, audacious move. Uh, he loses many of his war elephants. Um, unfortunately for him, he lost many of his siege towers and siege equipment that make it easier to take cities. He successfully crosses, but um, and enters Italy. Um, and during that period of time. Uh, Hannibal is able to win battle after battle against the Romans. In fact, some very, very devastating battles. His hope is that in Italy he can get all of Rome's allies to say, hey, the Carthaginians are winning, to heck with the Romans, we're going to side with the Carthaginians. Unfortunately uh, for Hannibal, he was never able to really get any of these um, people in great numbers to side with him. And so he was reduced to wandering and bouncing around Italy for years. I want you to consider, for years he was uh, moving with his troops across the Italian peninsula. He uh, was there from 218 to 207, never receiving uh, any kind of reinforcements from Carthage. In fact, this is probably the fatal error of the war for the Carthaginians. They did not send him reinforcements. Um, had he had reinforcements, had he had siege towers, he may have been able to take the city of Rome itself. Um, but he didn't. Uh, he didn't receive that support. Um, so during this period of time, the Carthaginians, you know, they're not dumb. They want to beat the Romans, um, and they want to solicit any kind of help they can. So the Carthaginians... Um, appealed to the Macedonians. Now, remember, Macedon is the Greek kingdom where Alexander the Great came from. And the Carthaginians appealed to the Macedonians, and the Macedonians made an alliance with Carthage against Rome. Well, this is going to precipitate uh, Rome getting into conflict with the Macedonians. In fact, Rome will have a series of four wars with the Macedonians, while they're simultaneously having these three wars uh, with the Carthaginians. So it's a, a testament to Rome's power that they were able to have Italy invaded uh, and be engaged in multiple wars and still come out victorious. Um, we'll talk about the, the Macedonian Wars later because we're primarily focused here, but I just wanted to give a, a side note that there's this other conflict going on at the same time. Uh, and it's going to sort of pave the way for Rome after the Punic Wars to, to head throughout the eastern Mediterranean and deal with those that have attacked them there. So um, there is a Roman general. We know him now as Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus. Uh, keep in mind that the Romans often added names when there were great events in their lives. Uh, this particular guy, Scipio, adds the name Africanus after what I'm going to narrate now. Um, he is Scipio the Elder. 
he had been a very successful general for Rome in Spain, and he decides, well, we can't seem to win a victory over um, Hannibal in Italy, so why don't we try to get him out of Italy? And so Scipio goes to North Africa and invades North Africa and threatens Carthage's home there. Uh, it was a pretty bright move because it did indeed uh, lure Hannibal out of Africa. Um, the Carthaginians brought him back to defend uh, the city of Carthage itself. And uh, the two meet at the Battle of Zama where uh, Hannibal is defeated by Scipio. This is a, an enormous um, honor, an enormous victory for the Romans. And uh, after the Second Carthaginian War, the Second Punic War, um, Carthage becomes a dependent ally, uh, meaning they're an ally, but they don't have all the rights of some of the Italian allies, and they're certainly not trusted. Um, and you would think this would be the end, because after all, Carthage's influence is now shrunk to the city of Carthage itself. Um, but this is not the end of the story. Um, many are convinced that Carthage has risen before from the ashes, and they will rise again. In particular, there's a very important Roman named Cato the Elder. Cato had been a farmer. He was like the the poster boy for traditional conservative Roman values. He had risen to power in Rome, gone through many of the more important offices in Roman government, and he had this he was convinced that Carthage was going to rise again and that they needed to be absolutely wiped out. Um, and so he had this unusual habit of at the end of every speech, even if it was a speech on, say, grain prices, he would end the speech with the Latin phrase Carthago delenda est, uh, which means something like Carthage must be destroyed. And um, so he had this very strong feeling that we're, we're not done with Carthage and we need to absolutely wipe them off the map. Um, and this was the sentiment of, of many senators, many influential people in Rome. Uh, I should also mention at this point that Cato, as I said, was a conservative, so he didn't like change. He didn't like new things. And as a result, he was not only thought that Carthage should be destroyed, but he was suspicious of the Greeks and of Greek influence. He was suspicious of what he saw as their decadent, uh, immoral, effeminate culture uh, and believed that it would have a corrupting influence on the traditional values of Rome. So he, um, he was not only against Carthage, but he was also against the influence of the Greeks. And uh, many people might say that in hindsight he was right, that, um, that Rome is later sort of undone by the influence of Greek culture. But we'll examine that eventually. We should also say that Carthage was never much of a cultural force. They were certainly a political force. They were certainly an economic force. But they didn't write any books that we have studied that have come down to us. Um, we, there's one book that we have that we know of of theirs, and it's an agricultural guide. So they didn't have a great literature that we have admired, like the Greeks or the Romans. Um, but this is a very important what-if turning point moment in Roman history. Had the Romans been defeated, the entire history of the world would be different. Had the Romans been defeated, 
The Roman government would not have influenced our founding fathers. Had the Romans been defeated, maybe the uh, learning and achievements of Greece and Rome would not have been transferred to the West and studied in the West. Um, had Rome been destroyed, it's, it's very easy to say Europe would never have emerged as the cultural force that it did. And uh, the center of world history might be elsewhere. It might be Africa or it might be further in the Middle East. Um, so this was a very important turning point in history when the Romans defeated the Carthaginians and now stand around the year 146 as the dominant power in all of the Eastern Mediterranean um, very quickly in Greece and eventually they're going to be moving toward Africa and the Middle East. So um, it's a very significant moment for its outcome, if not for the actual wars themselves. Um, now, I want to reiterate at this point that up until this time, Rome had been largely conservative in their fighting, largely self-defensive in their policies, largely generous to those that they defeated or those that made alliances with them. But after the Third Carthaginian War, Rome raises the city of Carthage to the ground, has the fields around Carthage salted so that they cannot be, uh, they cannot be used for agriculture, uh, basically does indeed wipe them off the map. And Rome becomes greatly enriched by that conquest. And this is going to do two things for Rome. They become far more power-hungry and far more greedy um, they uh, look with an eye toward other areas in the Mediterranean, not so much defensively, but aggressively. Uh, they become, you might say, much more predatory. Um, in addition, they became more ruthless and less generous in the extending of privileges to those that they conquered or those that allied with them. Uh, so it's sort of an ominous turning point <clears throat> in the history of Rome, um, and sets the tone now for the rest of their conquest. Um, so keep this in mind, how um, Rome is changing now, and many of the admirable things are going to begin to be eroded by the change in attitude towards conquest. Um, I also want to reiterate something that we've stressed in class, that the Roman government... <laughs> Um, Rome was a republic so far at this point. Remember, res publica, a possession of the people. Theoretically, the government belonged to the people and the government represented the people. Also remember the basic layout of the Roman government at this point. You had an executive branch that had two consuls who served for a year and then typically filled the Senate. Um, you had the Senate that made laws and decided foreign policy, and you had the growing power of the plebeian assembly. Uh, these were free citizens who sort of were a balance to the power of the Senate or a challenge to the power of the Senate. Um, remember this basic structure of the Roman government. So as Rome rises to world power, in less than a century, it ushers in these profound changes um, particularly their leaders, their magistrates, those that they appoint to rule conquered territories. Um, these guys had unprecedented power and influence, and they were away from the immediate accountability of the Senate. And this 
makes them easily tempted to ignore the Senate and to become rich personally and to become corrupt and maybe not live by a lot of the rules and traditions of Rome. Uh, in fact, there's going to be great pressure to live lavishly and to uh, you know, do what, what a traditional Roman far, farmer would have thought just awful, which is display your luxury, live sumptuously, have huge feasts, make it obvious that you are wealthy and influential. Um, so the conquest is really bad. And as time went by, there was sort of a motto or a, or a piece of folk wisdom that said that uh, if you were a Roman official of some kind, think Pontius Pilate or somebody else, you needed three fortunes. You needed to, in your life, you didn't need to make just one fortune. You had to make three. First, you had to make a fortune to bribe the people that you needed to bribe to get the office, right? It was seen like winning the lottery if you could get one of these offices where you had power and influence. Um, but then you needed to make uh, another fortune to pay off the jury who would try you for corruption after you left office. And then finally, you needed one more fortune uh, to retire on. Um, so we're beginning to see Rome turn towards corruption and opulence and decadence. And it is all sort of in the wake of the Punic Wars. The old world of the farmer soldier, the pious venerator of family gods and traditions, hardworking, plain speaking, virtuous, uh, conservative, those days are dissolving. And the unimagined wealth and the influence of foreign cultures... Um, that conquest brought are going to begin to corrode that old Roman world.